Hello, I hope you're having a great day. Welcome to another edition of the Cool Sword Podcast. I told you this week was going to be very, very good. Yes, we've got some outstanding content coming your way. And that will continue with this episode with Marshawn Evans Daniels. She's a cool soror of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, my cool soror. Hopefully you enjoyed Will Packer earlier this week. And the gems will continue to be dropped in this one as well. She has a brand new book coming out next week on March 13th and she'll tell you all about it. It's called Believe Bigger, which is why I wanted to title her episode just that, Believe Bigger. Here is my cool soul war, Marshawn Evans Daniels with Believe Bigger. Enjoy. You know you gotta be a cool soror to talk to the cool soror herself. I'm a cool soror. Hey y'all. I am a cool soror of What's up, y'all? I'm a cool soror of. Hi, I am a cool soror of. It's the Cool Soror Podcast, hosted by me, Rashawn Ali. It is another edition of the Cool Soror Podcast. I'm really happy to have this incredible woman on the line with us via Skype. She is Marshawn Evans Daniels, and she's a reinvention strategist mentoring women around the world to live bolder. And she has a new book. Coming out March 13th, Believe Bigger, Discover the Path to Your Life Purpose. Marshawn joins us via Skype. And Marshawn, welcome to the show. And you are a cool soror of? I am a cool soror of Kappa Lambda at Texas Christian University. Yes. Alpha Kappa Alpha. You got to say the sorority. <laughs> well, I forgot that the cool sorors are not just the yes. uh, AKAs. I forgot we're all sorors. We're all cool. My the, bad, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. I messed it up. No, you didn't. I have a cool soror of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, Kappa Lambda Chapter, That's three ninety nine. Right. Love to all of my sorors. Absolutely. Well, welcome to the show. How's everything going? I know you are very busy right now. Busy is blessed, but man, it can be hectic. I'm busy promoting this new book, and um, I run a company helping women, uh, largely women of faith, to increase their income and their influence to build successful businesses. So running a company, launching a book, being married to Mr. Jack A. Daniels, and trying to make time for myself somewhere in there in the middle. I don't know how you moms do it. I'm just amazed. <laughs> well, you know, we all find the balance and you know, our lives are equally as busy as everyone else's. So, and uh, you know, don't, don't think it's more, it's, it's even busier. I'm, I'm telling you, it's uh, you, you got a busy <laughs> life, ma'am. Definitely. So let's jump right into it. Um, you have, your, your journey has been something that is uh to some people who may look at it like wow how did she even continue to push through with all of the things that you have been through originally from north dallas texas um let's talk a little bit about your upbringing and how you became the woman that you are today where do you get this level of i gotta get it done this <laughs> wow i wish i could say it was a positive thing. It's been a productive thing, but I think for me, it started with feeling incapable. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the suburbs of North Dallas in a city called Richardson. 
And in the 80s, you would think that everything was cool in terms of racial relations. But at my school, my brother and I were two of a very small handful of black children in a predominantly white school. Mm -hmm. When I say predominantly, there were five of us. (laughs) So it was very much predominantly. And it felt more like integration. Mm -hmm. I remember showing up in first grade, the first day of school, and the teachers telling my parents, well, I shouldn't say the teachers, the ladies at the front desk where we went to check in at, saying that uh, automatically telling us to go down to the street at the end of the road, which is about a mile away. Mm -hmm. And they automatically assumed because we were black that we were to go to the school where all the other black kids in the area went to. And so my my dad, I remember him having to pull out ID to explain that this is where we belonged. Now, all the while, other kids are walking right by us, just giving their name, going straight to class. But we had to prove that we belonged. And for me, that really kind of signified the dichotomy of my childhood where at home I was loved, I was cared for, I was inspired, and I was nurtured to believe bigger, if you will. But the competing element of school, which is where a child spends the majority of their day, you know, during the day, I felt like I always had to prove. And so part of my get it done mentality was a byproduct of having to figure out a path for myself. I was labeled a problem child. I used to get in a lot of trouble for talking, but they tried to put me in alternative schools or they said I was antisocial and that I needed special education, which turned out not to be true. I ended up going to Georgetown and uh, graduating TCU magna cum laude. I didn't need any special education. And so I, I talk about and believe bigger how I also adopted this thing of success addiction. Yes. And so I that's why I say it's it was good for a while. But there comes a season where we outgrow the proving and outgrow the um, having to get things done so that we aren't looked upon as a failure. So yeah. to now I now I try to get things done that I want to do, that mm-hmm. I love to do, that are a product of me living the life, having the income, having the future and having the freedom that I want. So I'm the only one that stands between me and what I desire, but no longer am I really driven by what I think I have to do running from this shadow of, of impressions that I'm trying to leave behind. And so I don't do that anymore. At least I try not to. I think there's always a remnant of our past that we still always have to work through. Right. But that's kind of where I get it from. I get my drive from proving all the haters wrong, quite frankly. That's where it started. <laughs> right, right. So through your, you know, elementary experience, um, did you constantly feel like you had to fight? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say the entire time in elementary school, um, the best saving grace that I, I received was in the fifth grade. I was 10 years old. A teacher by the name of Mr. Eager transferred into our school and we were supposed to have three different home classrooms, but because we were short a teacher, they put us in two. Mm-hmm. So when Mr. Eager came in, they took some from one class and some from the second class to create his class. And I'm so grateful to God that I was put in his class because he didn't know anything about me. I got a fresh start and he was difficult. Some, I mean, when I say difficult, he was a disciplinarian. He walked around with a huge yardstick. And if you were talking, he slapped the, the yardstick on your desk. I'm sure teacher parents would have a problem with that nowadays. Now, yeah, of course. Absolutely. But he did something that really changed my life. Um, One day it was career day and I dressed up like a model. Mm -hmm. I had a hat on. I remember I had this yellow outfit on. I think I had a pink fanny pack. It was either a pink hat or a pink fanny pack. Mm -hmm. And uh, that to me was style. Again, 80s baby. And so um, I told him, 
you can't make me take my hat off today because it's career day. And so I thought, I, you know, I was feeling myself and I spoke to my teacher like that and I said it in front of the whole classroom and he was not feeling it. Mm-hmm. So he invited me to step out into the hall and as though that hadn't happened to me before, I was very used to that. But what was different is his, his face was beet red. So we go out into the hallway and he takes the hat off of my head and puts it in my hands, kind of smushes it in my hands a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he says, I thought he was about to yell at me. And he all of a sudden that redness turned to calm and he said, why do you act like this? You can be whatever you think you can be if you first think you can be it. Wow. He was the first person that had ever spoke life into possibility as opposed to just affirm that I was a problem. So I was expecting more of that problem child reaction. And it felt like, you know, Oprah talks about aha moment. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Aha! It was like a lightning bolt moment. I talk about throughout Believe Bigger these different lightning bolt moments. And that was my first one where I really felt like God stopped everything and just for a moment said, little girl, baby girl, my daughter, you matter. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of, I don't, I didn't think about this at 10 years old, but as I look back at my life, I can see that was the first time that someone taught me that it was okay to be different than other people's expectations. Yeah. Because the worst thing that we can do to our children is not just to label them, but to um, not condition their minds to overcome those labels. Because the most dangerous thing is when we believe them. Yes. It's one thing for someone to label you, but when you believe it, you can only rise to the level of your belief. So that gave me permission for the first time to start to expand. Now, it wasn't overnight. I had gone to the principal's office a few more times. I remember negotiating. My principal really was named Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so I remember us negotiating whether or not if I if I didn't get in trouble again, he wasn't going to tell my mom. So it wasn't like it was perfect, but it started me on the path of not feeling like I had to fight every day. But right. I would say even as a grown woman, it hasn't been until and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. It hasn't been until I was in my early 30s that I realized that I was still operating in the energy and the flow of proving and yeah. fighting. And there just comes a point where you're just tired. Yeah. <laughs> you're just tired. You just want to surrender. Man, wow. That's, did, does he know the impact that you had on him? Did, had on, uh, that he had on you? Did, did you ever get a chance to tell him? I did. He oh. actually was at my wedding. Wow. <laughs> he was at, well, so I was engaged previously. Right. We'll and get into then that. I actually, yeah, I <laughs> know yeah, we'll get to that. But he was at the wedding that was supposed to be, but the wedding that didn't, well, I shouldn't say supposed to be, the wedding that was scheduled. Okay. Just everything there that's scheduled is not supposed to happen. Right. And, but when that wedding did not happen, he was one of the ones who said, we will have that dance together. And he was at my wedding. Um, and I was able to speak to the all of those teachers in the entire school district, 3000 plus teachers um, early on. Right. I think it was right when I was in law school at the time. And they asked me to come and speak. because I've been a professional speaker for a while. And I remember having the opportunity to talk about the dangers of labeling and being me being labeled as a problem child in front of the very school district where I felt like I was nothing. But I also remember the moment where I had Mr. Eager stand up and there was not a dry eye in the place from the superintendent all the way down to the administrative staff and then also the teachers, the counselors, everybody to be able to honor him in front of his peers and to tell him thank you and to say this is the model for how we raise greatness in our kids. And for him to stand up, it was just one of the most, most 
gratifying moments for me, but I was glad because teachers, they don't always get their due. They don't get their reward. And most of us are impacted both positively and negatively, mostly positively by our teachers. It's just my elementary school experience. Every grade, I don't have a, I have mostly bad stories except that one year. And, but that one year was a defining element, a defining moment, I believe for the, for my life and who I am as a woman today. And so um, I thank him in my new book. Um, he's been a part of my life since I was 10 years old. I won't tell you how many years that means. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so fantastic. And that that is so true. I mean, I have the same types of stories um, with teachers because teachers matter. I mean, I'm from, I'm from, uh, my father was, a, was an educator and my husband's an educator. So I understand <laughs> the role that they play uh, in our lives. And so I'm glad that you were able to honor him in such a, a profound way. Um, let's talk about your, you know, your journey after, you know, you went to, you went to college there at Texas Christian, and then you went to, to, to law school and you became a sports attorney. Had you always mm-hmm. kind of gravitated towards sports? Actually, not really at all, at least not, not traditional sports. Um, when I went to law school, well, first of all, the reason I decided I wanted to become a lawyer was because I saw Claire Huxtable on the Cosby show. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that is why images matter. That's mm-hmm. why who we show up and how we show up as women matters, because what our young people will see is what they will be. Yeah. And if if I hadn't seen Claire, I don't know what I would have been. I would have picked an image from somebody else. But that was my first impression. When I decided to go to law school, I planned to be the attorney. Attorney General of the United States of America. I was going to be a juvenile court judge. I had gotten the opportunity to meet a former Attorney General when she was the current one, Janet Reno. She's now since passed away. And she was very pivotal in my life when I was a teenager. I got very involved in leadership development and youth crime prevention on a national level. Mm -hmm. And I was working with the U.S. Justice Department at 16 years old on youth crime prevention and leadership development matters. And uh, I got to meet Janet Reno at one of our first meetings for the, what became the National Youth Network, which was a federally funded program. And I remember telling her, I said, Attorney General Reno, I want to have your job one day. Wow. And she said to me, she said, Omar Sean, I believe you can be something so much bigger. Ooh. <laughs> and I just thought about that right now in that um, I, my, at the time, I'm 16 years old, it's bigger. Yeah. And then the attorney general of the United States, that's the that's the Super Bowl of Super Bowl status for lawyers. Right. Yes. That's the highest role in the land. And even she I'm so grateful for these moments as we're talking about them, where someone said, nope, there is even something greater. So that was really, I think, my first experience of realizing that the titles that we pursue are sometimes too small for the destiny that we really have mm-hmm. inside of us. But I wanted to be an attorney general. I ended up going to Georgetown. I. Uh, went to work at one of the largest law firms in Atlanta. It was a corporate commercial litigation firm. I did employment law and I had zero desire to go into sports. I remember being in law school, everyone fighting over the one sports law class that Georgetown offered because they're mostly focused on uh, justice types of issues as opposed to sports. They don't have a huge sports law program or options. So everyone's competing for it. And I was like, well, you don't have to worry about me taking your spot. Y'all can fight over it because I have no desire for it. Mm-hmm. But I was on a show called The Apprentice. Of course. And um, the uh, the run, of, as many know, by our current president, who was the host, I should say, at the time. And I was on that show 10 out of 13 weeks. The week that I got fired, I was sent back from the suite 
which basically is like living in a studio. It's a penthouse, but the whole ceiling has lights. There's cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like being on Big Brother. But when I got fired, although I'm not surprised at some of the mistakes that I see being made in the White House, because clearly he made a mistake in firing me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was finally by myself. And I was in, they put us in a private, like little mini apartment style hotel room. And I opened the refrigerator and that lightning bolt moment happened again. And I felt God say, you're going to work with pro athletes in the NFL and NBA. And you're going to work with them on their communication and presentation. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea where that came from. And a lot of times the new direction we get in our life comes like a flash. And because it's unfamiliar, we can ignore it. But I called my mom and I said, mom. And I called my mom because I knew she would actually speak life into it and not tell me that I was cray cray. Right. And I told her I'm going to work with athletes. And she said, yes, you will. So for the first year and a half of me practicing law, I didn't know how I was going to get into sports, but I kept speaking it and talking about it. I met a gentleman who was um, working for um, Russell Athletics at the time, Mm -hmm. and he agreed to sponsor one of my first events. I hadn't actually signed the clients yet, but I was telling them I had them. And most of my initial NFL and NBA clients were pro bono clients until I could really I had to develop the relationships, yes. but I ended up signing the highest paid defensive end in the NFL as my first client in 2007. Um, he had just signed a $62 million seven year deal, Charles Grant. Oh wow! And uh, yeah. that was my first client. That was my first client. And that's where the agency began to grow. And it was through that relationship that I met you for the first time. Yes, as well, too. it was. Wow. Cause I was just thinking as you were talking, I was like, I think that's how we actually met from that side yep. of who you are. Wow. I was probably trying to book athletes on, on the, the show. show with you. I yep. know we were buying radio airtime because I remember those bills <laughs> <laughs> when we would have the events that we were doing. And then when we had our first, yeah, this was our, our, I can't remember if this was the first year or the second year. I want to say it was the second year. We produced an event called the Caring Edge Awards mm-hmm. and you and Griff um, were the MCs for that. And we oh, had wow. Tiffany and company involved and Rose Royce involved. And so that was, um, either 10 or 11 years ago. Yep, it was. It was. Yeah. I remember because it, it was at a car dealership, the Rolls-Royce yep. car dealership. Yep, it sure was. Gosh, wow. Mm-hmm. So how did you transition from that to now being, I mean, y- y- you have speaking engagements across the world. I mean, and now you're, you're doing, you're an author, and you have amazing um, classes and seminar. Like, you do so much. What was that transition like for you, and why did you feel like something was bigger for you? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I had been a speaker since I was a teenager. I used to do it around 70 to 100 speaking engagements a year from the time I was in high school. I was also competing in the Miss America program, first as a teenager, and then in the Miss America program once I aged up, as they call it. I know in, what is that song with um, Tasha Cobbs and Nicki Minaj, and she said, I leveled up. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so in the pageant world, we call it when you age up. That's mm-hmm. when you can move to the next level. And so uh, I ended up representing D.C. at the Miss America competition. And when it was over, it's something that is difficult to describe, the feeling that you have when there's something you pursued for so long, and then you get to the pinnacle of that opportunity. And even though I didn't win, I was third runner up. I won talent and interview. I left with $80,000 in scholarships. So it was still a good showing. I still was questioning, well, what do I do with my life now? Because I always planned to have just won Miss America right, someday. Right, right. You didn't know about <laughs> third. Like, what is that? 
I didn't know about third. And then I decided then, I said, I'm going to be a professional speaker. I love what I'm doing. I loved um, speaking at daycares, elementary schools, colleges, at corporate events, um, doing my own seminars, doing seminars for other people. But I needed to learn how to do it as a business. Mm-hmm. I need to learn how to do it professionally. So this was back in 2000, 2001. This was before people had their own website. Yes. Like there was, and so I got my own website, MarshawnEvans.com. I actually had to buy it from the Miss DC people because back then they were buying all the girls' domains the mm-hmm. moment they won a state title mm-hmm. because uh, peop- squatters were just new on the scene. Right. And so they were turning them into porn websites and then the girls couldn't get their name back. Wow. So one of the first things I did is I bought my own internet real estate, digital real estate, and buying my name. And I studied Zig Ziglar and Les Brown and mm-hmm. Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. Those were the three speakers in the country. You had Brian Tracy, you had others. You didn't have a lot of women. They were mostly men. And I started to model my website, my speaking topics. I literally was self-taught. I didn't have a lot of money and I didn't even think about what I didn't have. I just thought about what I did want. So I started building out my speaking platform, learning how to get books. So I, I mastered pitching on my own. I didn't Nobody would represent me. I had reached out to the Washington Speakers Bureau, and mm-hmm. I figured since I had been Miss Washington, D.C., and they were based there, they would represent me, and that was a no. <laughs> Everything was a no, so I had to create my own yeses, and I'm so grateful now because I've, I've generated multiple six figures as a, what I call a traditional speaker, and but I've made millions as a speakerpreneur, meaning focusing on what I now teach, which are 14 different revenue streams for those who want to utilize their ideas and turn them into income. I have a national, really global, people come from around the world now to attend it. Our signature event is called Speak for Pay. And that event generates seven figures in three days. Wow. So I'm grateful that the Washington Speakers Bureau didn't represent me. Now I'm represented by a lot of speakers bureaus. Mm-hmm. People want you when everything is going and you've already proven that you that you know your stuff, that you've got it going on, if you will, and that you are an in-demand um, speaker. So, but that's how I started that transition from being a lawyer. Now, I did all of this while I was in law school. I was paying my wow. way through law school as a speaker. Um, I started my first foray into coaching, helping Miss America and Miss USA contestants. So I never had a job. I was always speaking. And I remember praying to God one day saying, I could really use, Lord, $1,500 a month. If I had $1,500 a month, just a speaking engagement here and there, that would really take care of everything. Yeah. Less than a week later, the phone rings and there's this company that wants me to basically start doing sales seminars. And to start, they, they were creating this pageant thing and they needed former pageant contestants to go and travel around the country doing these seminars, talking about the value and scholarships that were available. And it paid $1,500. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and I got a $500 a month wardrobe stipend. Mm-hmm. And I got a $1,500 bonus if there was a quota in terms of the number of people who signed up for the program. Right, right. So it was, it was, it, it, it was like, wow. So I didn't have to speak all the time. And I spoke for this organization. I did speaking engagements still on empowerment and youth crime prevention and then I was coaching Miss American, Miss USA contestants. So that's how I paid my way through law school until I became a lawyer. And I've been speaking professionally since I was about 21 years old. And so that's just been, no matter what I'm doing and what I call my other businesses, yes. speaking to me makes everything else easier. So when I was in sports, I was doing commentary 
on on ESPN, but I was also speaking at conferences about branding and getting into the industry. So speaking to me is something that every professional, every woman needs to have in her repertoire because the one thing you own that nobody can ever take away from is you your is your story. Is your what? Say that your again. Story. Your story. Yeah. Your voice. Yeah. So your story, voice, your strategy. The voice, I believe, is the most powerful thing that we possess as women. Um, believe bigger is really built around the concept of finding your purpose by finding your voice. Yes. One cannot exist without the other. And so that's why I believe in teaching speaking, it's not just about the profit aspect of it. It's about the divine aspect of it. We're created in the image of God for the purpose of creating. God creates by using his voice. If we think about how this all got started, he said, let there be light. Mm -hmm. So he spoke it into existence. So we can speak a new future beyond what we've been through by changing the way that we speak and creating a whole new financial destiny as well, too. We're talking a lot about money on this one. (laughs) No, we are, because maybe that's, you know, maybe that's God in the universe saying that Rashawn needs to hear more about that because what, you know, your husband is is helping me with. I'm I'm a client and I, you know, it's helping me see my greatest potential and for me to believe bigger in the highest thought of who I can be. So that's all of this is. It's, it's supposed to be happening. This conversation is supposed to be taking place. And it just, um, we're obviously going to help somebody um, because of the conversation that we're having today. So I believe that wholeheartedly. Amen. Well, you know, when you said to believe bigger, it, one of the things that we can take that phrase and we can misunderstand what it really means, but what, the way you used it is exactly the way it should be. So we should believe bigger than where we've been, who we've been, and what we've been through. Yes. That's what it really means. Right. And so, you know, one of the things is right before we started, I heard your voice when you came on and I was like, this girl got butter in her vocal cords. <laughs> like she just has the voice and your gifts. It's so effortless. It's just in who you are. It's your personality. And it's a clue as to your superpowers. Your superpowers are guides into your promised land, your mm-hmm. purpose path. And where you're supposed to end up. In the book, I talk about arriving in your glory zone. And I can hear it in you. I see it on you all of the time. I'm also just so proud of who you are. But one of the things that was evident from the first time that we met 11-something years ago was that you're great at radio, but your voice sometimes may have just been too big, even for radio, no matter how many towers there were to broadcast it around the world. Wow. And so to believe bigger is to believe bigger than the titles that we pursue, mm-hmm. the success mountains that I talk about in Believe Bigger, the success mountains of motherhood, marriage, mending, making a difference, and money. All of those things are good, but those titles can become idols and labels can become fables. Ooh. And to believe bigger is to believe bigger than the person we decided to be mm-hmm. to step into the person we were born to be. Oh, you better. I'm about to scream on this thing here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, that is so good. That is fantastic. That's, that's what I've been manifesting on. That's what I've been meditating on um, almost every day. Just really being the biggest version of myself that I can, that I can be bigger than I can ever fathom. And, um, yeah. and I guess, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, which, have, which is what you have said, that's all what Believe Bigger is all about. And uh, you mentioned mending. And there was a time mm-hmm. in your life that you truly had mm-hmm. to mend a broken heart when you were inspired by a split rock moment that turned your world upside down when you found out six days before your dream wedding that your fiance was cheating on you. How? 
did you mend your heart from this? Now, I can tell that this is one of the interviews where I'm being interviewed by a true journalist. (laughs) (laughs) The way she pivoted that, Mindy, you mentioned I love it. Yes, yes, yes. So, but she decided to pivot right into the, the, my rock bottom season. So, but we can go there. Um, so I discovered six days before my wedding that I wasn't engaged to who I thought I was engaged to. Now, during this time is when I actually had met you and everything was great. I had this growing company. I was able in the sports world to grow my business by being focused. I wasn't that social of a person. I was only social by nature of my profession. And in Atlanta, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm about entertainment. And there are Mm -hmm. a lot of groupies that are portraying themselves as professionals. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that really helped me was leading with my and understanding the, the, the professionalism that was required. So that helped me grow to really grow a quality NFL and NBA base that was outside of just people who lived in Atlanta, okay. if you will. So my business is going well. I had a, a book out called Skirts in the Boardroom published by Wiley. It was the first time they published a business with an African-American female under the age of 30. Mm-hmm. And they're the largest business book publisher in the country. And I'm also engaged um, to a man who lives in Chicago and we're having a long distance relationship. I um, was very smitten and also just adored children. And I was so looking forward to being a bonus mom. And I was really preparing to be their mom. Right. And in the process of going and spending time in New York and getting to know them. And I mean, it was almost like day one, we were already a family. Mm-hmm. And I never experienced, I experienced a lot of successes and resume checkoff type of things, but I had never experiencing experience hearing kids call you mom. Mm-hmm. That was a life changing element. And so I felt like all of the things that I had built in Atlanta did not compare to the fulfillment that I had in being a mom. And people are surprised, were surprised that I was willing to transition from the sports business that I started. I left my law firm. I started this business from scratch. Um, and now I'm going to close this down. I start referring all my clients away because my fiance says, you know what, you've been hustling and running and managing their stuff, doing your book tour, speaking, you're doing television. Why don't you just rest? Let me take care of you. You bought me this nice luxury vehicle. And so what woman doesn't want to hear that? Right. And this independent was like, I don't think that's a good idea, but I talked to my dad Mm -hmm. and he's like, darling, that is one of the things that a man is supposed to do um, in his own version of it when when a man is trying to care for you and you've got to learn to drop your guard and let your guard down. And so I did that and I'm looking forward to us getting married. We were getting married on a Sunday and that Monday he was um, coming into Atlanta and I discover while he's on the plane on his way here for wedding week, it's right. actually hard to say, back to back the W's there. <laughs> I discovered while he was on the plane, I know he was on the plane because I hear the pilots in the background. Just moments before I called him, I discovered that he, or at least I was told that he had been cheating on me. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, one of the most devastating experiences for me because I didn't see this coming. In right. my mind, I'm like, these kinds of things don't happen to me. Mm-hmm. And I was 29 years old. This was one of the first true, true relationships, the most mature relationship I would say that I had been in. I mean, becoming a mom and having, by putting, getting a house, we'd gotten a house. I hadn't, we, I hadn't moved into it yet, but I had moved my stuff up 
there. Right. So I'm like, this was like lifelong forever type of moves. And so I called the wedding off a few hours after he landed in Atlanta. All the details are in in the book, actually. Uh-huh. But um, that was really the beginning of a new version of me. Yes. Um, difficult. A lot of people say it was brave. Me, it was easy in that moment. But what was hard was the healing. Yes. Grace gave me enough um I don't know, enough ability to be able to make a difficult decision without really thinking about it. I talk and believe bigger in the book about a supernatural kind of spiritual encounter that's just between me and God on my sofa in my townhouse in Midtown Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, the night before that I believe was preparing me to not lose my mind the next morning. Mm-hmm. I look at it now and I'm like, oh, that's what was happening the night before. And so I go through that. And I don't want women to think that I'm different in any way because people, I've met thousands of women. I mean, it's amazing to me how many have said, I knew I should have called it off, but I didn't have the strength to do it. Wow, wow. So it wasn't that I had strength, I had grace. Mm-hmm. Because there were times where I was going back and forth. Is this something that's going to be a future testimony? Maybe I can work it out. Because even when something dramatic happens, it doesn't start stop your heart from beating when you're in love with somebody. Right, right. And this is how we can get stuck in going in negative dysfunctional cycles is because our feelings and our mind are, are not actually aligned. Mm-hmm. And so I had that tug of war. But, but I prayed a prayer one day and I, I, I was really... Um, serious about this prayer. I was like, God, can this be restored? And I bowed down on my knees. I remember it was at my parents' house in Dallas. And it was the first time that I actually saw letters when I prayed. And the letters said, in, oh, they were thick and bold. And there was a giant, massive exclamation mark. That has never happened to me since where I saw an actual word. And it was it was like it was yelling at me. No, and that was the shortest prayer I've ever prayed in the place <laughs> right. I've ever gotten. It still wasn't easy. And I talk in the book about how I was wrestling with this decision. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up as women for the humanity of our uncertainty. We don't know always what the right decision is. And I wanted to share from a transparent place, infidelity, Mm -hmm. um, the spiritual journey is on. Because some people will just look at accomplishment or achievement and I'm a real person. I'm not only just a real person, I'm a real woman. Yes. And, and even in growing our businesses, we can think that defines who we are, but it doesn't. It's our heart condition that defines who we are. And if our heart isn't well, then our who is totally messed up. Yes. We don't know who we are when we're walking around with, as my husband now says, with Band-Aids over bullet wounds. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Band-Aids over bullet wounds. And we do that because what do we do? We suit up again. We put the mask on. We smile, but we really don't know how to laugh. We know how to smile. We know how to wear the mask. We know how to put our suit back on, to dress it all up, to sew it in and to (laughs) strap it on over our ankles. We suit up, but we don't know how to really operate in a place of peace and joy and fulfillment because we haven't taken proper care of our soul. So when this whole thing happened, I found myself dealing with depression for the first time. And I'm a motivational speaker. Right. And I can't get out of bed. Sometimes the only reason I would get out of bed is ESPN. I remember this one. This is maybe a week or two after I I had called the wedding off. ESPN calls and asks if I want to come on and do commentary about Tiger Woods cheating on his wife. Oh, my God. Did you take it? I suit up. Absolutely. I took every opportunity, every time. 
I needed to, I, I had let all my clients go. I still needed to keep something going so that I could pay my bills. Right. And, but that was me wearing the mask. Mm-hmm. I did what I had to do, even though I was speaking about a reality that I was experiencing right. myself. Right. I'm talking about his brand and his image and how he's going to come back. Right. And how he can overcome this and the kind of apology he needs to write in terms of crisis management. But here I'm like the wife in that situation. Mm -hmm. Right. So we know how to wear the mask. And the reason why I believe that this um, gift of disruption came into my life, the blessing of betrayal was able to birth something bigger. Yes. And the premise behind believing bigger, again, is to believe bigger than what you've been through, bigger than who you've been as well. See, this wasn't just about me breaking up and with a romantic relationship. This was about me breaking up with an outdated version of myself. Ooh, ooh, that is, that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. I didn't know that in the moment because it feels like you're under attack. But really, when we feel like we're under attack, when we have an elevated mindset, what's really happening is that we're in alignment. We're mm-hmm. coming into alignment. It's a realignment. Mm-hmm. And so things that seem like they're happening to you, they really are happening for you. But it's because there's something within you that God is trying to do new through you. Yes. But it hasn't had an opportunity to emerge because you're addicted on who you've been. Ooh, you're my God, my God. You're wired. Oh, 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 my God. <laughs> You're wired in the old version of you. I talk and believe bigger about these five stages of divine reinvention, mm-hmm. something I now call the purpose map. And in the first stage, it's all about the rules that we learn about who we should be. And all of those shoulds, all of the shooting on that I had had and that, that we, I had had and that we all have in our lives, it's what guides us up these different mountains. It's also what creates the space and the room for imposters and intruders to come into our life and make their home in our hearts because we've been conditioned to attract them. I could have been mad at him. I don't condone bad behavior or dysfunctional behavior, but I didn't have to, I didn't know that he, that he had this as an issue mm-hmm. or at least I had attention, but I had to recognize and ask this question. How did I attract him? Because I'm the common denominator at this point. Right. He's in my life. He was in my life. How did I bring him here? And that requires a grown woman to ask that question because that means we accept personal responsibility. We stop blaming the men and we start looking at our own heart condition. I said your heart condition determines who you are. Who you are determines who comes into your life. So you can blame all the men and say there's no good men out there. But the question is, are there wounds that have not yet been healed that are attracting unhealed people who are attracted just like a dog is attracted to like fresh meat that's just been, you know, fresh kill? Mm -hmm. They'll come right in. And so if you haven't, if you're not, if there's a part of you that is dead, then someone else is going to come in all of that up. And sometimes that's who you've been attracting is because there's wounds that are still open. And you're attracting people who are actually, their wounds are drawn to your wounds. I mean, I'm getting, we're getting a free, we're getting a free <laughs> diagnosis here. <laughs> yeah, but it happens to all of us. It you does. don't have to have been cheated on. Many women actually have now come to discover most of us. <laughs> um, but it doesn't have to just be that. It can be anything in your life that no longer belongs. Mm-hmm. In my life at the time, I thought I would have thought that I was operating 
in my purpose or in my life mission because I was helping people. And I believe in that season, I was doing everything I was supposed to do, but to go to the next level. And this is important for us to get, for us to shift and to do what I call an up shift to go not just farther in advance, but also to go higher where we have a more elevated view. It requires that we realize that sometimes we just outgrow the old version of us and that there's a higher version of us that can't play by the old rules. So the things that got you here (laughs) will not get you there. It doesn't mean that what you did to get here wasn't good. It just can't get you there. So you don't have to have shame and regret and blame. It just means it's time for an upgraded version. You don't, and you're going to have to leave some people behind, some things behind, some things behind because the higher version of you needs a higher belief system. Mm-hmm. That is so good. I feel like I'm <laughs> so there. Like I'm really at mm-hmm. that pivotal moment in my life to really be the Rashawn that is supposed to be the moment I was born. And we have to re-remember mm-hmm. because we taught, we're taught who we're supposed to be. And then we have to unlearn those things and then truly re-remember who we are. And I'm mm-hmm. really, I'm at the crossroads right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what you're calling the crossroads in Believe Bigger, I call it the gap. Okay. So can I real quickly kind of sure, share these five absolutely. stages? Go ahead. So and working when I when I came out of professional sports and I got my heart broken, I had to figure out how I was going to pay my bills because now I got this luxury vehicle that he bought that I can now not afford. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bill because I let go of all of my clients. But God still told me to pause and get still. And this is why planting seeds is so important because you never know when you're going to actually need the harvest. So speaking engagements just started coming in. Not a lot, but just enough. Mm -hmm. And I was able to take the time for stillness. I got into counseling. I'm a huge advocate of therapy and counseling. In the beginning, I went two days a week. I went two days a week. Mm -hmm. I knew that my life was not my own. I knew that my life mattered, but I knew that my life was a mess Right. and my heart was a mess and I didn't know how I got here. So I needed help. And I did not just go to church. I did not just go and get spiritual counseling. I got professional counseling. Yes. Yes. And as I started to grow and get back to a place of clarity first, like the thing about disruption and betrayal, especially is it ruins your intuition. Like it just stomps on it. Like it's not worth anything. It just crushes it. Mm -hmm. So I had to find my center again. And as I did that, I started getting new ideas and vision and a desire to start working with women, which for me was different because I wasn't one of the women that liked working with women. Women, Right. Not in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of pain there. What I learned is that our purpose is often hidden inside and behind and underneath a place of pain. So the reason... One of the number one reasons why we misunderstand our purpose. I don't say you can't find it because you don't have to find it. It already is in you. It already is you. But one of the reasons we misunderstand it is because we don't want to do the work that requires us to dump the junk. Because in the middle of that is where our purpose is. It's in the things that hurt us, that wounded us, the stuff that we've placed our own do not enter sign on. That's where our purpose actually is. So I didn't want to work with women, but who knew that I now run the largest coaching company for women of faith in the country. Wow. I didn't want to do that. Right. So what you don't want to do often is tied to what you're meant to do. As I started working with women, I discovered these five patterns that are in all of our lives. It happened with men. And then I looked in the B I B L E and I look at the transition of Christ's life. And also um, from Saul to Paul, from Esther, from 
uh, Jeremiah, uh, uh, Joseph, I mean, when he went from the pit to the palace. And these five stages are universal. And I believe these are the five stages that God intends all of us to go through. But most of us will never make it out of stage two. Wow. Ever. So stage one is discovery. Discovery is, um, and when I, when I found this out, I drew it in a business journal for myself. And then I met a woman who was at Home Depot. Delta Airlines was one of my clients. And I went to a Delta reception. Met this woman at Home Depot, super senior level executive. You probably had met her before because you knew everybody. <laughs> in Atlanta. Anybody was anybody, Rashawn already knew him. And she was telling me about a transitional place she was in her life and she was getting ready to make a leap, but she didn't know where or what or how. So I wanted to help her. And this was the first time I shared this outside of my private journal. I took a napkin, I flipped it over and I drew a box. And inside of it, I wrote the word discovery, which is the first stage. And discovery is where we learn the rules that I was talking about. These are the do's and don'ts of life. This is what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And um, this is where we learn people pleasing. Mm -hmm. This is where we learn protocol. This is where we learn how to color within the lines and not get our name on the board. Mm -hmm. This is where we learn how not to be rejected, how to be loved. This is also where we determine who we think we are good enough to become. That's in phase one, stage one discovery. Okay. Next, I drew another box and inside of it, I wrote talent. Mm -hmm. And in talent, this is where those five success mountains come into play. In talent, we ask the question, who did I decide to be? Because yes. you can be anything that you decide. Let's just get that out there. Just because you decided it, it doesn't mean that that's who you were designed to be. Mm -hmm. Decision and design are two completely different things. Right. And so we can decide to be like I was a lawyer. I decided that if you work at anything, anything you water will grow. So it doesn't mean it's who I was born to be. And this is why we get stuck as women. And this is why most people will never make it out of stage two is because we are attached to our own decisions and we're more attached. And I like to use the word addicted, but a lot of women are going to be offended by the way I use the word addicted because I call every woman an addict. I just say, which kind of addiction has been your drug of choice? Ooh. This is an honest conversation. Yeah. I had to look at that. I had been addicted to my money mountain and my success mountain and the prestige mountain mm -hmm. because that gave me validation. Right, right. So in that space, we get addicted to that. And it's difficult for us to understand when destiny is knocking on the door because it doesn't look like what we've decided. Right. We create our own life and make our own life an idol because we're not willing to leave it behind mm -hmm. when it's time to shift and move forward. So I wrote that in this. Not all of that. I just wrote one word <laughs> where right, I right. said. And then I moved on to the middle stage and I drew like a bridge and underneath it, a circle that symbolized going in circles and wandering. And in the middle of that, I called the gap, which is like the crossroads you were just talking about. And the gap is where the majority of women on the planet are right now. Um, in the gap, it's where we ask the question, what is now happening to me? Mm -hmm. And you know you're in a gap because if you take the word shift, just take the F out. And when it <laughs> just starts happening all around you, right. when your relationships break down, when what you thought was stable is now shaky, you're in this place of obscurity, a wilderness in between your promised land and your Egypt. You're not exactly where you were and you're not where you feel you're supposed to be. You may not even have a clear picture, but you're in that middle space and place. This is one of the most critical seasons and times in our life, but it's important to know that you're not here by accident. Right. Right. We can think that we have made mistakes because we're in an obscure time and we can't, we don't have clarity. Mm -hmm. It's necessary. 
And this is where we really beat ourselves up. This is also where we revert back to where we have been. And we're like, well, at least if I go backwards, I'm clear about where I'm going because I've already been there. So there's this pull. I know for me, I was like, well, when everything started, when Ish hit the fan, I was like, maybe I just need to go back into sports. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized the grace that is upon all of our gifts, even though there are great things that we do in a way that other people may be not, it may not be their gift or their blessing. When I tried to go back, all the things that were once easy now became hard. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, I thought I was good. I didn't know I was really, I thought I was riding a bike and really it was a tricycle. I thought I was riding, there were, you know, there was help and it was, it was holy help. And I didn't really realize how much this was just, that was my season. So when you try to go back to an old season, it just doesn't work. But that's what we do in the gap. And I also talk and believe bigger about seven blessing blockers that keep us stuck. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we stay stuck, why we go circling like the uh, the children of Israel, just going in circles forever and ever and ever. But we do that in our own lives. The goal is uh, for us to shift into stage four. So I drew another box and in there I wrote the words gifts. This is where I believe destiny is trying to usher you into. On the other side of the gap is your superpowers. It's your voice. It's what you're really here for, what makes you unique and different. It's the reason why your life exists to begin with. Now, we may not know what those things are, but we're supposed to ask the question in stage four, how did God really design me? Not just who did I decide to be? Right. And that's just a place of surrender. I walk you through the book on how to discover that. And the last stage is called influence. And so I drew that book, that box, I wrote influence. And I said, this is what we're all here for. And for because she was in a financial season of wanting to also maintain or have a bigger financial vision, I also put um, financial legacy because that's part of influence and impact is leaving something behind that represents who you are. And in that question, we ask the question, where am I now being guided and Mm -hmm. led to? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times we think purpose is about our big why or our big what, but I believe purpose begins with the question of where, where am I where is my life supposed to lead other people to? Wow. That's the ultimate question that we must ask. Mm-hmm. And so when God, when we see our lives, we see a mess. But through these five stages, I discovered that when God sees our lives, he doesn't see a mess. He sees a map. Mm-hmm. And that's where the purpose map came from. My goal in Believe Bigger is to help walk us through this so that we adopt new language similar to the five love languages. That we won't just talk about purpose because now it's become a buzzword we're feeling it. That's why we have the Me Too movement and the boss lady and the girl chick and the boss chick movement. We're feeling really what we don't understand is an awakening of voices, of superpowers, of possibilities that have been suppressed for so long. But because we don't have language to, to describe it, we're taking the male style of success, being a boss, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And calling that feminine. And that's not natural to us. So we're, this is going to max out and tap out because Women, we do have the answers that the, that the world needs right now. But if we do not understand it in the context of purpose and not just prestige, <laughs> it's going to be another mountain that we climb. And so I wanted to give us actual language and processes and simple things. When you read Believe Bigger, you'll be able to leave with a clear, definitive, simple statement that defines what your purpose is. Because most people on the planet don't know their purpose. But my goal is to change that. And you will do that one step at a time with Believe Bigger. And it hits uh, stores March 13th. How excited are you? I am very excited. The 13th is 13 is the number of rebellion. (laughs) And so I am ready for the rebellion 
to begin. Yes, yes. This is a beautiful thing. Well, there was nothing rebellious about becoming a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated in the spring of 1999. Now, did Alpha Kappa Alpha choose you or did you choose Alpha Kappa Alpha? You know, I didn't grow up in a family of sorors or my I was first generation college on my dad's side of the family and my mom went to college, but she didn't pledge. So I didn't know really the difference or the history. It wasn't something that I went to college actually even looking forward to. It was something that I got to experience while I was there. I believe AKA, Alpha Kappa Alpha being an AKA was one of the things that um, gave me balance in my life. When I went to college, I was an overachiever. I was studying all the time and I wasn't having fun. And it was the first time because I didn't have a lot of girlfriends growing up. It was the first time that I made a decision to prioritize sisterhood and to not just wait for someone or someone's to pick me to be a part of a circle, but to choose to be what I wanted to see, to be the sister that I wanted to have. And it was, it was, I've, I've said this now, goodness gracious, I can't believe it's been, um, 19 years going yes, on almost 20 years right. since I pledged. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God, <laughs> it happened. But it was one of the things that created balance in my life. And now I guess I could actually say Rashawn that, that that was really a sign then that that was part of my purpose path right. of sisterhood, because now I believe not iron sharpening, but sister sharpening as one sister sharpens another. So are we able to strengthen who we are collectively, but also individually? Beautiful. That's fantastic. What is your definition of cool? Hmm. I think it's surrendered. Mm. Like you wear life passionately, but loosely. Yes. Right. Like you're passionate about things, but if they come, they're for you. If they leave, they're not. But you, you loved them while they were there, but you're willing to make room for whatever is new. But you love who's in your circle and you enjoy life for where you are right now. So that's what I think it means for me. Yes, yes. And that is, I think you have just described yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying every day. I'm, I'm a work in progress like us all. Like I definitely all. have the ambition gene. So just trying to uh, chill, take a chill pill sometimes mm-hmm. takes intention. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. How can people find you? Um, where can they get your book? I mean, obviously it's going to be in bookstores everywhere because you're, you're Simon Schuster. You know what I mean? It's going to be everywhere, <laughs> but tell everybody how they can stay connected with you. Yes. Yeah, so you can stay connected with me at Marshawn.com. M-A-R-S-H-A-W-N Marshawn.com. And you can learn about my upcoming program called She Profits, helping women to increase their wealth. Um, but also you can get the book at believebigger.com. Now, believebigger.com is one place where you can buy the book. And we have links to all the different resellers and retailers. But you can get it at Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, literally anywhere books, have, books are sold and around the world. One of the awesome things about being with Simon & Schuster is certainly the distribution and the reach. But I really pushed for this book to be in the women in business category, although it's not specifically a business book. And I'm with Simon & Schuster's imprint, which is Howard Books, which is for their Christian authors. Oh, okay. And so they believed that this was a risk to put a Christian author in the business category. Mm. But I believe in this vision of this Proverbs 31 woman, that 
And I also write in Believe Bigger that a woman's place is anywhere God sends her. So for me, the way that my purpose has been discovered is not just operating in the four walls of a church or the four walls of a building or career, but in the four corners of the world, to be on national television, to be in the mainstream, and to be a believer without limits. That it doesn't mean that we have to be paupers, that we can be prosperous, we can be successful, we can be beautiful, and we can be in alignment with our divine assignment. So I did this, and I'm I mention this because it means a lot for other women that are listening to be Simon and Schuster authors that are believers that want to combine both faith and business like I do. Uh, They think this is a risk and this is actually a test. So I heard guys say, watch the Proverbs 31 women really stand up. And so I'm inviting them to do that at Believe Bigger. There's tons of bonuses. You'll get a vision board workshop with me, a devotional, um, a purpose map, actual workshop and training. And all of the bundles are discounted. So for purpose-minded women that know you're here to change other people's lives, we've got bundles so that you can invest it in other women, in a prisons ministry, in your ministry, um, with girls, with teenagers. Because I really want our daughters, before they even learn how to say their ABCs or even as they're growing up, for them to know from the very beginning that they are called to have influence. That stage five is what they know that they will be designed for. That our, in, that our young toddlers will be drawing on an illustrated version of the purpose map, knowing that this is what their life is going to be about. And so that's my vision. And you can learn more. And you can also meet me on the road during our book tour at believebigger.com. Awesome. Well, this has been truly enjoyable. I'm so very thankful and grateful for your time. I mean, I have, you've dropped so many amazing gems for our listeners today, and I'm really, really just excited for you and where God has not only taken you already, but will continue to take you as you prosper and live your purpose. I love it. Thank, Thank you so much, Marcia. And you too. Thank you. you too. I'm so proud of you. You are, um, you are a walking miracle. You are walking elegance in action. And I just continue to speak life into your dreams, into your voice, to your possibilities over this show and your future shows and also over your family because you have, I actually remember when you were pregnant. Right, <laughs> we were I at know. Destiny Metro Church. Yes, yes. And um, I just continue to speak life over everything that you touch forever and ever. Thank you so much, Marshawn. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Marshawn Evans Daniels, everybody. Hi, my name is Marshawn Evans Daniels, reinvention strategist, founder of the Godfidence Movement, and the author of the book, Believe Bigger, Discover the Path to Your Life Purpose. And I am a cool soror of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. (laughs) 